Okay, so we are about ready to get started. And there's some music going that you can see if you can figure out what it might be. Okay, so if nobody's gotten it by now, you're not going to get it. Uh, <laughs> uh, that is a piece that actually was sung at St. Philip's uh, probably shortly before the pandemic. It is by the great English composer Edgar Bainton, and it is the, the text of it is Revelation 21, exactly the passage we had last Sunday that Andrew preached on, um, set to music. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. And I will see if I can get our PowerPoint to come up here. Amazing. So with that, let us say a prayer together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this night and for this chance to gather together around this wonderful book and around the insights from your word that it shows us. Father, we pray that you would help us to put aside all of the things that have distracted us or called for our attention during the day and that you would help us during this time to focus in on what you have for us tonight. Lord, we thank you for the journey through the abolition of man and that hideous strength uh, that began last fall and we thank you for uh, the great wisdom that is contained in these books. We thank you for your servant, C.S. Lewis, and for 
his life and pray that you would help us as we seek to understand these things to be conformed through your Holy Spirit more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I just want to say a word of congratulations to those of you that have lasted through the year um, that started in Philadelphia Alley when we couldn't breathe and uh, it was unbearably hot and stuffy uh, and you have persisted and you will, I wish I had like a merit badge I could give you because this has been a deep and intense book or a deep and intense two books, so I'm grateful for you hanging in there. So let's start by saying our verse together. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, what we're going to do tonight is a quick review of some of the main things that we have focused on over the course of this past year, and then do a little reflecting at the end about what this might mean for us and how we live today. And I hope that I will get through it all. So, we'll see how it goes. So, just going way back to the beginning, remember we talked about how it was that Lewis came to write these two books, The Abolition of Man and That Hideous Strength. And part of what was going on was that Lewis, being a converted atheist and somebody who was deeply schooled in philosophy, he was able to spot these things that were going on in the culture that would ultimately bear really dangerous fruit. And so he was uniquely equipped to be able to see those things, and then because of his conversion to Christianity, to see how God's story is a more beautiful story. And the Inklings and Tolkien helped Lewis in this conception. You also have to remember that this was conceived and birthed right in the darkest period of World War II, when the Blitz is going on in England where they really believed that the Nazis were going to cross the channel and invade the country. Um, most of normal life in England had been utterly shut down, and a lot of people were basically just waiting to die. That sort of environment has a wonderfully clarifying effect on your priorities. And so there is this whole focus on ultimate questions um, that came through this. And in the midst of all of this, Tolkien and Lewis were talking one day about the fact that there was not enough of the kind of literature that they liked to read. They literally made a wager. Lewis got the space story, and the space trilogy is the result of that. And as he was writing that, the themes that would be uh, prominent in Abolition of Man were very much on his mind. He was invited to do this 
very prestigious lecture um, at King's College in Newcastle, which is part of Durham University. And this was uh, a series of lectures that was given to an academic group of philosophy professors. So any of you that felt really bad that when you were reading The Abolition of Man, even though it's so short, you would read it and you'd be like, what? Uh, don't feel bad because it was designed for people who had doctorates in philosophy. So, uh, but I will still say if you had trouble with it, now that you've read that hideous strength, go back to Abolition of Man and it will make much more sense. So these lectures uh, were the academic way of presenting it. And then Lewis became more and more convinced that these themes were vitally important. And so he decided he was going to make the last of the space trilogy reflect what was going on in his mind about the abolition of man. And very uncharacteristically for Lewis, he actually tells us he's doing that. Lewis loved to hide things in his work, but here he actually tells us that that hideous strength is explaining the same themes as the abolition of man. So a lot of scholars think abolition of man is one of the most important philosophical works, not just by Lewis, but of the past hundred years. And it has been all over the place uh, in the past 24 months in all kinds of circles, academic, media circles, uh, all around the world. But the interesting thing is that you'll remember when we first started looking at abolition of man, Lewis's focus was on the education system and that the education system was the source of many of these negative trends that were affecting the world. And so he believed that these changes that were taking place in education would fundamentally shift the assumptions on which people based their lives. And we, over our generation, have taken a lot of these changes for granted, and we've begun to accept, perhaps unwittingly, a lot of the bad, what Lewis would call bad assumptions that were under this worldview. So we talked at length uh, in class about the liberal arts tradition. That's still a word that you hear thrown around, especially around May 1st when people are getting all their college acceptances, uh, and you hear about people going to liberal arts colleges, um, but there are hardly any colleges, even the ones that call themselves liberal arts colleges, that actually are that anymore. And the liberal arts means something very, very specific. And the point of a liberal arts education was not to equip you to get a high-paying job. The point of a liberal arts education was to equip you to live a good and virtuous life. And that is a fundamentally different purpose than what most happens in most universities today. Listen to this quotation from the 18th century scholar Alexander von Humboldt. There are undeniably certain kinds of knowledge that must be of a general nature, and more importantly, a certain cultivation of the mind and character that nobody can afford to be without. People obviously cannot be good craft workers, merchants, soldiers or businessmen unless, regardless of their occupation, they are good, upstanding, and according to their condition, well-informed human beings and citizens. If this basis is laid through schooling, vocational skills are easily acquired later on, and a person is always free to move from one occupation to another. 
We have exactly reversed that now. Um, you don't get any of that kind of formation in school. It is all vocational stuff. So we talked about Augustine and how important his influence was and the fact that Augustine is all about this idea that truth is attainable and that knowledge and wisdom are possible because all truth derives from God and it derives from what we can see in his creation and his law but is perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. And one of the things that Lewis really picked up on from Augustine was this idea of rightly ordered loves. And Augustine put it this way, living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. In other words, we need to be trained to love what is right, to love what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. We are not called to just love whatever we choose to love. We are to be shaped, to be formed by the word of God, by the natural law of creation, uh, by the truth that is expressed in Jesus Christ. And as we lean into that design, there is beauty and human flourishing that comes from that. Um, we spent a lot of time with Psalm 19. Uh, I still commend to you, if you haven't spent uh, a day just meditating on Psalm 19 through the day, please do that because we are so used to being indoors uh, that we just miss all of this revelation that is part of the way that God has created the world. So the origin uh, of that, of abolition of man, we talked about, and the way that it is organized uh, is very important because he's got these three chapters that build on each other. So the first one is called Men Without Chests. Now, obviously, now that we've gotten through that hideous strength, we've had that awful image of the severed head that doesn't have a chest or a body or anything, and we've seen all of the stuff the nice talked about of trying to eliminate the body, eliminate everything that's natural uh, in favor of just strictly mental processes. But in Men Without Chest, this is talking about the importance of holding on to objective value versus the poison of subjectivism. In other words, the idea that there are things that are objectively true, that are absolutely true for everyone all the time across all ages, that there are things that are beautiful, that beautiful is an objective quality that proceeds from who God is and from his creation, that goodness is defined by the word of God and it is not something that is up for grabs. It is not speak your own truth. It is defined, it is real, it is tangible, fungible, all of those kinds of things. And Lewis has a great essay you might want to read in your spare time called The Poison of Subjectivism. So he makes that, that's sort of his opening salvo. Uh, then his next chapter is about the Tao, the natural law, uh, which he lays out as the sole source of all value judgments, the only plumb line or the only compass that you can use for behavior. 
And there's a brilliant appendix. Uh, if you didn't like the abolition of man, you might still like the appendix. Most people don't read the appendix to books. But the appendix to this one is a survey of every religious and ethical system that is out there and what they teach about morality and is absolutely fascinating, at least to me. <laughs> so, and then the third chapter is called The Abolition of Man. And here he talks about what will happen if these fundamental assumptions that have shifted in education actually work their way through the culture. And that it will mean that uh, deconstructionism, which hadn't even been invented at the time that Lewis wrote Abolition of Man, Derrida and Foucault and all of those guys, that they would come to the fore, that they would destroy all meaning, they would destroy all beauty, everything would just disintegrate, and that this whole idea that if you see through everything and you can take everything apart, Lewis says eventually you get to the place where there's nothing left. There's nothing to see because you've dismantled it all. So Lewis was very convinced that this was a particularly important book. He continued to talk about how it was maybe the most important thing he wrote at various points later in his life. Um, we talked about how he thought it was important enough to write a whole other book to show it through a fictional standpoint. And I love the title, That Hideous Strength, um, which Lewis draws right from the Tower of Babel story in the book of Genesis, um, as it was expressed in this uh, poem from the 1500s. The shadow of that hideous strength, six miles more it is of length. And the whole idea of what happens when man says, God, I do not need you. God, you do not exist. I'm good on my own. We can solve all the problems of the world because we are smarter and better and more powerful than any generation that ever lived before. And religion is just a crutch that is holding us back. And Lewis says that is devilry, which was a very strong word for an Oxford academic to use, devilry. And uh, you saw in that hideous strength this whole idea of the dark powers that are at work. So one of the interesting things about abolition of man is that it works through sort of these classic things. And in that hideous strength, the subtitle gives away a little bit of what Lewis is doing, a modern fairy tale for grown-ups. Now, if you know much about Lewis and Tolkien, you'll know that calling something a fairy tale is one of the greatest compliments that could ever be given because his view was that you can show something through a fairy tale, through a fictional context that will have an impact on you that is weightier uh, and truer in some ways than just reading objective facts because it engages all of you, not just your mind, but your soul and your emotions. And so through that, he was hoping that he would be able to uh, wake people up out of their sleep. It's part of the reason I love that verse that we start with every week, because it is easy to be lulled to sleep. Just look at what happened as the nice was getting established. People thought, oh, maybe this is great. It's bringing more money into the area. Who wouldn't like that? Um, there's a great line in the handout tonight. At the end of it, it says, and just a word to my dear readers, if anyone suggests that you go and work for a severed head, uh, 
that demands human sacrifices, you can be pretty sure that those are the bad guys. And no matter how much money they offer you, you probably don't want to go work there. So you heard it here first. So part of the, part of the interesting thing with that hideous strength is that when people first read it, they thought, well, this is outlandish. This is like really very sci-fi sort of things. But when we read it now, it gives us chills. It's like that article that I talked about um, that was one of the handouts two weeks ago from the Business Insider, which is like the last place you would ever expect an, an article about C.S. Lewis. But the article basically said, everyone in our culture today is talking about 1984. And he said, no, no, no. It's not 1984. It's not even Brave New World. It is that hideous strength that is coming true right in front of us. And it's interesting looking at what Orwell, George Orwell, who wrote 1984 in Animal Farm, he said, plenty of people in our age, which was World War II, do entertain the monstrous dreams of power that Mr. Lewis attributes to his characters, and we are within sight of the time when such dreams will be realizable. Well, he was right about that. So, abolition of man is something that is really important in several different landscapes. It's very important in Lewis literature. It's important in Christian literature. It is one of the most important books in the classical schooling movement. But beyond that, it has a much broader reach that most of us are not aware of. It is an important work and the discussions that go on in academic philosophy even today. Um, if you follow much academic philosophy, which is a fairly arcane thing um, that I wouldn't necessarily recommend, Alistair McIntyre would be someone that you'd be very familiar with. And he was hugely influenced by Lewis. Book After Virtue, which a lot of people would say is probably the most important philosophical book of the past hundred years. Um, is deeply indebted to it. Uh, you can also tell how good something is by who hates it. Um, Ayn Rand couldn't stand uh, Abolition of Man, calling it abysmal scum and a cheap, awful, touchy, social, metaphysical mediocrity. It's a great description. Um, but a lot of other people um, from as varied as Pope Benedict, um, Hans Urs von Balthasar, Wendell Berry, Catholics, Protestants, atheists, all of them admire this work. So that's a pretty good clue that Lewis might be saying something really important. And we've talked a lot about Michael Ward, who is one of the greatest living Lewis scholars. And he wrote that brilliant book that's on the table over there, After Humanity, which is a guide to the abolition of man. And he says several things that I want to just highlight because I think, again, it's really important for where we are in our culture. Lewis is arguing that moral law is a premise. It is not a conclusion. We have to accept it as a given. We can't argue to it. We must argue from it. It is an objective reality which we did not make up. We must submit to it. We must surrender to it and grow up within it. It is like a trellis 
with which you would train a climbing rose. Contrast that to the speak your own truth idea. But if you take the opposite view, which is the view of our culture right now, that we, we create moral law according to our own subjective preferences, you can do whatever you like because there's nothing that is objectively real in the moral world. And we see that all over everywhere. Things that just seem utterly nonsensical that people say with a completely straight face. It's just whatever you happen to choose, that's what we hear. And the unfortunate thing is that happiness, human flourishing, one of the things we know from the scriptures and from philosophy, happiness and human flourishing consist in conforming oneself to reality. Reality with a capital R, given reality, not twisting reality to suit your own convenience or your own desires. The common modern day phrase, speaking my truth, connects very precisely with this prophecy that Lewis is making, that we'll all just determine reality according to our own particular perspective, which leads to moral anarchy and therefore to a post-truth world, which is where we are. So this is particularly poignant given what just happened in Texas. But Lewis starts the chapter, um, the opening chapter of the abolition of man, with a quotation from a 15th century Christmas carol, Pure Nobis Nascitur, which is about Herod's slaughter of the innocents. Innocent children have been slaughtered all throughout human history. And it is a mark of the evil that lurks within men's souls. It is a mark of original sin. It is a mark of the fact that we live in a fallen world. No matter how much we get told that if we spend enough money, we can fix all the problems of the world, it is not true. We need to be redeemed. And uh, Alan Jacobs put it this way, surely it must have been a kind of macabre joke on Lewis's part to preface a critique of textbooks with these lines. But no, Herod could but kill the body. Our teachers, Lewis thinks, are killing our children's souls, and this is the most grievous sin. Lewis is not simply admonishing English schoolmasters to correct a pedagogical error. He is, rather, writing to tackle nothing less than the hegemony of relativism in modern Western culture. Focusing attention on the unattractive destination to which he believes that radical and persistent subjectivism inexorably leads, this book is a warning. Lewis is saying, in essence, we are on the wrong path, and this is where it will take us to self-destruction. In this work, how we might change tack is not his principal concern. The closing sentence of the final lecture about impending moral blindness sums up his cautionary purpose. And Malcolm Geith says this, in the far more important sense, abolition of man was an attempt completely against the grain of his own culture to speak truth to power. In particular, it recognized that the real power to open or close the mind rests not with pure philosophers and conversation in the universities, but rather with programs of mass education and with the assumptions that lie behind widely used school textbooks. And I want to just give a little example of this from when I was teaching ethics and 
Um, over the time that I was teaching ethics to high school students, one of the exercises we would do when we would talk about absolute truth is we would talk about the Nazis in Germany. And so we would say, how many of you believe that what the Nazis did in Germany was evil and wrong? And so, of course, everyone would raise their hand. And then we would say, well, why? And so usually you would go, well, duh, which is not a particularly well-informed answer. Uh, but if you pushed for a little while, you would hear things like, it goes against what we know is right and wrong, it goes against the Ten Commandments, it goes against murder, it goes against prejudice, it goes against racism, all those kinds of things. And then we could push back when I was trying to get them to understand, say, well, all of this was enacted by the German legislature, all of these things popularly elected. And the, you know, usually we would eventually get to the point, there are some things that are just wrong. There are things that are wrong, there are things that are evil. But after the school embraced a diversity mission and really started teaching from a very different point of view, once those kids got to high school and I would do that same exercise, I would get pushback and I would hear from people, who are we to say that the Nazis were wrong? Who are we to say that? We may think they were wrong, but who are we to interfere in their affairs? If they decide that that is what they want to do, that is their business, and we have no right to say anything or to criticize them. We don't have to like it, but we, we have no um, ability to say that that is wrong. Well, that is what happens when relativism infects a curriculum across a school. And that is what has happened across the entire American educational landscape and really in Europe as well. So it is uh, not a good place to be. And then the other thing that Lewis talks about so much here is language and how important language is. And you could probably say Lewis is a little bit of a martinet about this because he and Tolkien loved philology, the study of languages. They made up languages in their spare time. I'm sure most of y'all do that on Sunday afternoons. And you make up declensions of fake languages. Um, but they believed that language was a gift. That one of the things, there are two things that distinguish humans from all of the rest of God's creation. One is the ability to speak language. The second is the ability to create art. And so Lewis said those two things are going to be the things that come most under attack um, through the forces of darkness. And that's why Babel was something that resonated so much with him. And we saw in that hideous strength particularly doublespeak all over everywhere. I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago um, who confessed to me that he had been so confused when he was first reading this book because he would read these long speeches by Deputy Director Wither and he would finish this long page and a half paragraph and then think, I don't understand what that meant. And then he would go back and try to read it again and he said, eventually I finally realized that the point of it was that it wasn't going to make sense. Um, it's all doublespeak, it doesn't mean anything, it's just babbling an interesting derivation of that word, too. So the Oxford Dictionary says doublespeak is deliberately euphemistic, ambiguous, or obscure language. Doublespeak is the complete opposite of plain and simple truth. So if a pharmaceutical company said something like, there are some minor side effects when they should clearly be stating this drug may cause a heart attack, they're using doublespeak 
and communicating in a deceptive manner. And this is what we see when people say things like, things are great when clearly everything is going to hell in a handbasket. And then there is this great quotation from Orwell, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. Just like with the nice, so brilliantly named. How could you not like the nice? The nice are coming to our town. Wouldn't we all want to welcome the nice? But the fact of the matter is that language is perverted in those kinds of circumstances to call evil good. So again, back to Michael Ward and objectivity of value. Uh, Lewis defends the objectivity of value pointing to the universal moral ecology that all great philosophical and religious traditions have acknowledged as self-evident. Though Lewis writes as an apologist for Christianity and many of his other works, he here constructs his argument on purely philosophical grounds, making an anthropological claim, not advancing a theological case, that is, focusing on what it means to be human. Objective value, he maintains, is humanity's ethical inheritance, which we can extend and develop, but may not properly escape. Insofar as we try to deny or subvert this way of being moral, we make ourselves and those whom we raise or teach or otherwise influence essentially less than human. We produce men without chest, or in other words, people who have no stable heart, no reliable capacity to liaise between intellect and appetite, no ability to distinguish between what is good in itself and what is good for them. Right thus devolves into might and sheer willpower takes the place of reason. The result is the erasure of our own true identity, the abolition of man. And we see this over and over again in so many writings and uh, works of art, films coming out of our culture that basically say humans are just animals, that we are no different from any other kind of animal. Uh, to believe that we are is to um, exert oppressive power um, over other species and that we have no more value than any other animal that is out there. And the more that we want to be authentic, that means living into our desires and our instincts. Any idea of right and wrong or moral governance um, is just part of our privilege that we need to be disabused of. So both these books, both Abolition of Man and uh, That Hideous Strength, open with a, uh, almost like a soliloquy about beauty. And that is not an accident. Lewis doesn't ever do anything by accident. So you'll remember in The Abolition of Man, he starts with this whole thing about the waterfall, this beautiful waterfall. We'll see if that sticks. So. Uh, he talks about this beautiful waterfall, and the idea of a waterfall is that it is magnificent, it is breathtaking, and it is something that makes an impression even when you can't yet see it. You can feel the coolness of it before you get there. You can hear the sound of it hitting over the rocks. Uh, all of these kinds of things prepare you 
to be amazed by the wonder and beauty of it. But we see in this textbook that Lewis takes to task in The Abolition of Man that this objective beauty is diminished by reductive reasoning and misuse of language. And it is dumbed down just saying, oh, that's pretty. Which Lewis says, no, that a waterfall, it may be pretty, but that is not all that it is. There's much, much more to it. And again, the waterfall, the artist that created the waterfall is God. It is part of God's creation. And then uh, that hideous strength, Lewis uses this beautiful section about Bragdon Wood to illustrate the idea of beauty. And so there's a little quotation from that. Very few people were allowed into Bragdon Wood. Remember, it's the ancient wood where Merlin's well is that's in the heart of this old college with a big ancient moss-encrusted wall around it. The gate was by Inigo Jones and was the only entry. A high wall enclosed the wood, which was perhaps a quarter of a mile broad and a mile from east to west. If you came in from the street and went through the college to reach it, the sense of gradual penetration into a holy of holies was very strong. All right, so Lewis is using a lot of very loaded language here. Inigo Jones, one of the great uh, figures of design in England, uh, very, very prominent in the 1600s, created all sorts of beautiful architectural works. And this whole idea, Lewis wants us to think about Inigo Jones because he mentions him not once, not twice, but three times. Um, if Lewis does that, that's like shouting, hello, pay attention. Uh, so this whole idea about the beauty and order Everything Inigo Jones did is absolutely rooted in the classical ratios, the golden ratio, the Fibonacci sequence, all those kinds of things. Um, there's this whole uh, idea in this section about the unbelievable beauty that is in this particular place and how that is connected with holiness, that beauty and holiness are deeply connected. And this is a foreshadowing of what happens in chapter seven um, that we're gonna get to in a minute. So I wanna just look a little bit about the nice versus the company at St. Anne's. And you probably, unless you've been asleep, which is totally okay if you were on the beach and you were asleep, I hope you had a nice nap. Uh, but unless you've been totally asleep, you've noticed that part of the structure of that hideous strength is this contrast. There are two journeys that are going on here. There's Jane's journey toward Christ. There's Mark's journey toward evil. And those places are represented geographically by the nice at Belberry and the company at St. Anne's. And you'll remember that long lesson that when I couldn't get off of chapter one for three weeks, uh, where they had this beautiful contrast of Jane taking this train ride, this slow train through this bucolic, gorgeous countryside with sunsets and breeze and birds flying and the sound of cattle uh, and then going by ancient churches and crosses as she goes to St. Anne's. So she's on that journey. Mark has been picked up by Lord Feverstone and his red sports car, where they drive, breaking all of the speed limits and traffic laws, run over some animals on their way, 
hurtling toward the nice. So Lewis has been kind of in, his, in our face about that. But these are two different journeys, and one is better than the other. Uh, but you'll also notice that the organizations are parallel, the nice and the company at St. Anne's. So in the nice, you have the head and the deputy director um, who are both just horrible. I mean, the head is literally the severed head, uh, controlled by demons, okay? That's not good, in case you didn't notice. Um, and then the deputy director, who is this sort of shell of a man who can't say anything with any clarity, but is always sort of vaguely threatening and disturbing. Whereas at St. Anne's, you have Ransom, the director, whose presence draws people to worship. Um, he is the director. He is also the Pendragon, deeply rooted in history. The nice is all about everything that's new and modern. We're smarter and better than anyone that ever came before. The company at St. Anne's is rooted all the way through all the generations of history back to the early Christian days in England. Then we see at the nice this major just disdain for human life. People are cogs. They are to be used, uh, they are to be exploited, and then they are to be discarded. Whereas at St. Anne's there is a reverence for human life. Each individual is really valuable, no matter how quirky they may be. Um, there are all kinds of different people who are there, um, but they are all treated with reverence and respect. The nice has a huge disdain for creation, um, they cut down the trees, um, they kill off everything that's natural. Remember how they talk about how natural life is just gross, it's like garbage, it has, you know, bacteria, ooh. And so what you want to do is get rid of all that and have trees that are made out of metal that are fake, that you can just move around um, at your pleasure. On the other hand, the company at St. Anne's is surrounded by this garden, and it is a beautiful garden that is overflowing and luxuriant and a garden where they are cultivating vegetables. So very, very different. Uh, the nice, there's complete disdain for the created order, uh, the whole thing about what the purpose of a human is, um, what the purpose of animals is. Remember, they've got a whole zoo of animals that they're experimenting on and people that they are experimenting on. It's very much like what the Nazis were doing, and I'm, that's not an accident on Lewis's part. Whereas on the other hand, at the nice, there's this reverence for the created order, and I probably should have capitalized that for the company at St. Anne's. Reverence for the created order, an understanding of the beauty of the way God ordered his creation, living into the beauty of the fact that God made them in his image, male and female, he created them and the glory of masculinity and the glory of femininity in their fullness, uh, which is what God intended for their mutual joy and which makes um, for a much richer world. All of that is absolutely disdained and disbelieved at the nice. The nice is utterly amoral. They're not just immoral, they're immoral. They don't have any morals. They don't believe in any morals strictly utilitarian. Anything that will help them achieve their end, which they believe their end is automatically worthy and just, um, any means to get to that end, lying, murder, no matter what it is, is 
absolutely permissible, and not just permissible, but encouraged. The company at St. Anne's is moral. There are several times where the director says, we must never stoop to use the kind of methods that our enemies use. They are guided by God. They are guided by God's word. The nice is ugly and clinical. We get a lot of uh, information in the book about the way it smells, the way it looks, um, this very sort of clinical, bright blue, ugly light. Whereas St. Anne's, it's beautiful. The light is golden. Um, it's rich and sumptuous and fecund. Everything feels like it's full of fertility and growing. Um, the nice is violent. There's fighting all the time, people arguing all the time, um, extreme competition, um, whereas the company at St. Anne's, peaceful, loving, welcoming. The nice is all about destroying things. Company at St. Anne's is all about cultivating things. Uh, the nice despises history and ancient wisdom, uh, whereas the company at St. Anne's embraces that. The nice rejects all objective value. They believe there's no such thing as truth, beauty, or goodness, whereas the company at St. Anne's embraces all those things. There's a disdain for language versus reverence for language, lies, doublespeak, and propaganda versus truth and clarity. In case you didn't notice, one side of that slide is better than the other. All right, so uh, this is from the handout for tonight, and I think there's some great wisdom in here. I wanted to just share this with you. Um, Matt Michelados is a, an author, uh, deeply Christian, uh, worked with Crew Campus Ministry for a long time. He's written a lot of fantasy and science fiction, and he's a huge fan of this book. He says, McPhee and the heroes of the novel have mostly been sitting around at a manor house. How have they contributed to this great and glorious victory that comes at the end of the book? Ransom has the answer. You have done what was required of you. He goes on to say, you have obeyed and waited. It will often happen like that. As one of the modern authors has told us, the altar must often be built in one place in order that the fire from heaven may descend somewhere else. And this is from Charles Williams. The point being that part of contributing to the cosmic war raging around us is not necessarily to take up weapons and fight, so much as it is to create the world that should be. We need to make holy spaces, feed the animals, take care of the gardens, echoing Adam and Eve. A healthy marriage may do more to save the world than marching into town to fight the bad guys. A group of neighbors who love each other and are at peace with nature creates space for righteousness to take root in the world and win over the forces of evil. We could be forgiven for thinking that the point of this story is that England is in the very center of the universe, what with all the talk of Logros versus Britain. But that's not it at all. Lewis is not saying that England is the center of the cosmic war, but that you and I are. As someone else has said, the line between good and evil runs down the middle of the human heart. Whatever country you're living in, whatever neighborhood, whatever relationships you're entangled in, those are the most important things happening in the entire universe. They are life and death places where your decision to do what is right and good and to embrace evil
Your decision to do what is right and good or to embrace evil could have consequences for the whole and could be the difference between universal victory or communal defeat. And not because we fought the new curriculum at the university, not because we voted for this or that candidate, not because we won an argument on social media or managed to get the job that would make us truly influential in the world. No, the most important thing we can do is to be present in the world, to be kind. And when God speaks clearly, to do as instructed. And what does God say most clearly over and over again is the most important thing to do? Love God, love others. Everything else flows from that. We say that great commandment every Sunday in the liturgy. It is on the wall behind the altar in the church, but it's all too easy to forget that. So a couple of lessons or reflections um, that I think we can learn from the company at St. Anne's about what it means to live wisely and make the best use of time when the days are evil. So the first thing you see with the company of St. Anne's is there is a radical commitment to being together. They go way beyond what we think of as fellowship. They actually establish a commune. They are living together. They give up their homes and move in together. Now, I'm not sure that I'm quite ready to advocate that we need to do that, but I do think that there's a lot we can do to live more consciously into community with other believers. It is not like church being something that you go to once a week like the grocery store. We need to identify with our people. The people at St. Anne's understood that they are part of this group that matters, that is absolutely strategic for what God is doing in the world. And we need to develop that kind of commitment to one another. It's also an inclusive community. There are people of all kinds of different social statuses, people that would never naturally in the world be together, but they are very clear there's a bright line before you can come into that community. And that bright line is that faith in Christ is necessary for full admission to the community. McPhee is kind of a hanger-on, but he is not admitted into the fullness of that community. The other thing that is so interesting is you can see the company at St. Anne's, the entire focus of that community is on the director and on his masters and what they're doing. And remember, Ransom is a Christ figure here. So the focus is on Christ, the word, the heavenly powers, characterized by worship and trust and obedience, that they are all about obedience. We live in a culture that obedience is not prized. We prize independence and rebellion, challenging authority, but obedience to someone who is trustworthy, who is in the place of Christ here, is the focus of this community. There's also a huge devotion to prayer. There's somebody praying just about every passage about the company at St. Anne's. There's someone praying somewhere. Our prayer lives could use some work, or at least I can't say that about you, but I can say it about me. Uh, we are not radically committed to prayer. We usually feel like prayer is the last alternative. Um, after we've done everything we can do in our own strength, well, there's nothing left to do but pray. But what you see in the book, and Lewis does this so deliberately, it's just in our face, but we miss it, is that they do not use the weapons of the world to go after the knights. They have every opportunity to do that. McPhee is at them constantly to go do that. But what they do is they pray and they wait 
and when they're very clear that God is calling them to do something, then they act. But it is bathed in prayer, a kind of prayer that I think is rare today. Um, and again, they refuse to adopt the methods of the world or the enemy. They will not be tainted by that kind of evil. There is a commitment to waiting on the Lord and on his timing, even when that's really difficult, when it looks like everything is falling apart, all these terrible things are happening, but they wait on the Lord. And remember what happens. God causes all of this, causes the nice literally to implode on itself in a way that they could never have done that if they had tried to take up the weapons of the world. There's a deep understanding of the evil that is at work and of its methods. There's not a denial that, oh, they're just a little misguided, or they're really good people, they're just a little confused. They are very clear that there is such a thing as evil. They are aware of that thing that's called evil. They are aware that they need shelter and protection from it. And they also are aware that you, you cannot be complicit with it. All of that stuff about they won't let Jane in the community because Mark is associated even remotely with the nice. You cannot be complicit with evil. Um, there is a focus in the company at St. Anne's on beauty, truth, and goodness. Um, you see it every time Lewis writes about the company at St. Anne's, writes about the manner, the way the language is versus when he writes about the nice is radically different. There's a reverence there for creation and for the created order. There's a glorying in the animals and their eccentricities. There's a glorying in the flowers that grow, the vegetables that grow, and the earthiness of it all, and the miracle that life can happen out of the ground. Uh, and they, they live into that. And they focus on cultivating that earth. There's also a commitment to speaking the truth and love. You'll notice that there at the nice, people are always arguing. Every instance where he talks about the nice, there's always an argument or something like that going on. In the company at St. Anne's, they don't argue. They may not agree, but they speak the truth and love to one another. And the key to all of this um, really is in chapter 7, uh, which is that chapter where Jane goes in for the first time to the director's room and meets the director. And part of what that is caught up in is this whole idea of a commitment to a different reality, understanding that they are citizens of a different kingdom, that they are in but not of the world. And I want to just unpack that for a moment because I think this is really important. We live in a culture that is pressing on us all the time in a way that is really unheard of in the history of the human race. One of the things that we have is 24-7 uh, access to technology. And most of that technology is pushing news to us all the time. And if you know anything about news, uh, you know that bad news sells much better than good news. And so every tragedy and horror of the world is being brought to us 24-7. And it is more than the human heart can bear. And the thing that is so difficult about that is that unless you have a heart of stone, you want to try to do something about all of this. But the problem is you can't do practically, um, physically, very much about things like the war in Ukraine. 
There may be some things you can do, but you can't go stop Putin from what he's doing. It's impossible. And we get so anxious and so wrapped up with all of these things that we become consumed with despair and anxiety. And the problem with that is that is exactly where Satan wants us to be. Because we live in a culture that is full of despair. Christians are the ones who know Jesus Christ, who know that the battle has been won on the cross and sealed by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And we are the ones that have hope and joy and a more beautiful story. And if we are so anxious and discouraged and disgusted that all we can do is mope around and wring our hands, then Satan is just gleefully laughing at us. And what we've got to learn to do is to detach from that stream that's pushing on us all the time and to lean, do what they do in the company at St. Anne's, to lean into things of beauty, truth, and goodness, to lean into the kingdom of God, to lean into worship, to lean into scripture, to lean into real fellowship. Because when you do those kinds of things, it changes what's going on in your soul. We are enjoined over and over again in scripture to set our minds on things above where Christ is. And when we set our minds on the things of this world, we just become hopeless and we become ineffective. And you see in chapter 7, which I commend to you to go back and reread, when Jane walks into that room, she is full of all kinds of issues. She's worried about what is happening in Edgestow. She's worried about the fact that her marriage is falling apart. She's worried about the fact that she's not being respected and given her just due as a modern woman by these people at the company at St. Anne's. She's worried that she's going to be um, co-opted by this director in some way. She's got this whole bucket of angst that's bigger than she is. And she walks into the room where the director is, and she looks at the director, and the beauty of holiness that emanates from him, the way Lewis puts it, is her world was unmade. And all through that chapter, every time that she tries to think or worry about the things that she was so wrought up about, she can't do it. When she looks at the director, all of it falls away. She realized that there's nothing more important than worship, than being connected to God, being connected to the truth, goodness, and beauty that radiate out of this man who is the Christ figure. So for us as Christians, I think there is a real word there about how we need to shift our focus. Um, it is really easy to buy into that idea that salvation comes on Air Force One and to think that that is what everything is all about. But that is a hopeless narrative. It is a hopeless narrative. And if the only narrative you hear is the one that starts with CNN and MSNBC on one side and arcs across and goes through Fox News and Breitbart on the other, and it doesn't matter where you are on that spectrum, if that's all you're getting, um, you're listening to static rather than the kingdom of God. And I would really encourage you to um, think about some of these things and consider leaning into them. So I want us to close by looking at this passage from Revelation. And um, it was really interesting. I love when things happen that I wish I could have planned that are coincidences, uh, but they just happen on their own. 
Um, those of you that were here on Sunday heard Andrew preach a really great sermon about Revelation 21 and the fact that it is so important as Christians that we understand where our true home is and that what we have to look forward to, because if you have no hope, you have nothing to offer a hurting world. And he preached a beautiful sermon about this exact text. And I had already decided that this was what I wanted to end with. So it was a beautiful, supportive move. Um, so I want us to just read this, and then we're going to um, listen to it sung. Please read this with me. And, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That is something that is worth meditating on. So I'm just going to put up the choral version of this, which we listened to the first part at the beginning of class. And um, I commend to you, this is from St. Andrew's Cathedral, Sydney, um, which is an awesome evangelical Anglican church that has a music program that is absolutely fantastic. And during the pandemic, they knew a lockdown was coming, and so they did a choir marathon where they called in their choir and they recorded all of this different music so that they could release it gradually over the pandemic to encourage people. So cool. So let me get this going here.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have a hope for the future because of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. And we thank you for this promise of the new heaven and the new earth. Lord, as we live in this time where the days do seem evil, we pray that you would help us as your people to lean into some of the wisdom from this book, to lean into following Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be deeply committed to one another, to be deeply committed to prayer, and to be ready to bloom in the field in which you have planted us. Lord, I thank you for each person here and each person listening via podcast or the live stream and pray that you would put a hedge of protection around their hearts and that you would help them to grow more and more into the fullness of the image of Jesus, your son. For we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here. Preview of coming attractions. Uh, Next fall, The Great Divorce will be coming your way. Uh, If you don't know The Great Divorce, it has absolutely nothing to do with divorce or marriage. Don't worry about that. It is what Lewis calls a supposal about heaven and hell. And it imagines a bus trip where people that are in hell have the opportunity to make a field trip to heaven and see what they think about it and they all decide that they'd rather stay in hell. Um, It is a fascinating book, but it is deeply insightful about the things that hold us back from being utterly sold out to following Christ. So I look forward to engaging that with you. Thank you so much for being here.